What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode one. That's right. Episode one of the Playing the Field podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Field, and I could not be more excited to get this adventure started with all of you. I've been throwing around the idea of starting a podcast for years now, but I've either been too busy or too nervous to actually pull the trigger. But here we are. Uh, first and foremost, before I forget, a uh, major shout out to a good buddy of mine, uh, Keith Marler, who made that intro for me. Um, I hit Keith up uh, a couple of weeks ago about potentially whipping something up for me, um, and he came back with that in just one day. He's a super talented guy, even better person. Please check him out on SoundCloud. Once again, Keith Marler, he's got some really, really good stuff out there. So I want to take a second here and explain to you a little bit about what this podcast is going to be. First, why did I name it Playing the Field? Yes, you have the play on words with my last name, which is cool. But when you hear the term playing the field, what do you think of? For me, in a relationship type setting, it means that you want to see what's out there. You don't want to settle down with just one person, go home with the same person over and over again. For this podcast, I don't want to just settle on one sports topic. I want to play the field. I don't want this show to be about just the NFL or just about my personal coaching stories, you know? On the bio that I made for Twitter and Facebook and Instagram page, for the podcast, I said it was going to be a place where a variety of sports stories, memories, and professions are discussed, shared, and debated. And that is exactly what it's going to be. As a young professional in the sports industry, I've bounced around from place to place. I've had tons of really great experiences. I've met some of the most selfless and talented people I could ever imagine. And I really, really want to share all those stories, memories, experiences, that go along with them to you guys. So why am I starting this podcast right now? Well, first and foremost, I am bored out of my damn mind during quarantine. And actually really quick while I'm on that topic, shout out to all the first responders out there on the front lines battling this deadly virus. What you guys are doing is heroic. We can never thank you enough for your efforts. But I feel like all of us sports junkies are just not getting our fix of sports lately. I know Trust me, I know that is not what is most important right now, but dang, I, I really miss watching sports. Sports are pretty much the only thing that I'll watch live on TV and not having that for what's over 50 days now has been wild. You know, we're entering May, the baseball season should be a month in, the NBA and NHL teams should be in the middle of playoff pushes, uh, there should be this buzz about the NFL draft and the schedule getting released for the NFL. And it, don't get me wrong, it was awesome the NFL went through with their draft, but it felt like such a tease because before we even knew it happened, it was over. So I figured now would be a really, really great time to bring sports back into my life and hopefully into yours as well. Over the course of this podcast, you're going to meet a lot of my previous and current coworkers, uh, former teammates, players I've had the chance to coach, people I've coached with, and some professional athletes mixed in there too. And we're going to have some really great conversations that hopefully you guys find at least mildly entertaining. And hey, if you don't think they are, that's fine. Just do me a huge favor and lie to my face when we talk about it. Um, but seriously, I really hope you guys enjoy this. Um, and I fully understand that maybe not every episode will be up your alley, and that's okay. But I do think you're going to love hearing about the ins and outs of the sports industry especially maybe a perspective that's different uh, for somebody who's, you know, like myself, who's just kind of breaking into the sports industry. 
Um, there are going to be a ton of guests who come onto the show, um, but I'm going to have a couple of recurring guests who you're going to hear a lot of, uh, or a lot from, rather, um, during the course of the podcast. Uh, the first one who you know will be on the show quite a bit is one of my best friends that I made when I was at UConn, and his name is Bruno. And because I'm an absolute nut about the New England Patriots, like seriously, guys, I am a nut about the Pats and the NFL as a whole for that matter. During football season, I convinced Bruno to um, come on. And hit, we're going to record one episode a week during the season uh, talking you know, about the Patriots for sure, but also talking about the best of the best from the previous week and making picks for the upcoming slate of games for the upcoming week. And I really, truly believe that is going to be so, so much fun for Bruno and I. We've joked about potentially making a podcast for a while now, and I'm super excited that you know he's agreed to come on and do that. You guys are going to absolutely love him. And I know, you know, I just told you guys that this podcast is going to be about different topics. So, you know, it's not just going to be about Patriots and the NFL, but, you know, during the NFL season, there will be one episode a week about that kind of stuff. But like I said, the gist of this podcast is going to be bringing on guests from the sports world and discussing our stories. And two guests who you're going to have the distinct pleasure of hearing from quite a bit on this show are two people that I respect and I'm incredibly lucky to call friends, uh, Wally Hansen and Mike Dombrowski. Oddly enough, uh, they were both my teachers in high school. Maybe a little bit weird, but that's all right. Mike was my civics teacher um, senior year of high school, and Wally was my PE teacher uh, all four years, and he was also my basketball coach. And when I got into coaching after high school, I was able to come back and coach alongside both of them with the boys' basketball team. And we formed this immediate, unwavering chemistry right off the bat. Um, this is not a lie. We have a group chat where we text 365 days of the year. Uh, what mostly happens is Dombrowski will send some outrageous text message with a hot take. Uh, Wally will answer, and then Dombrowski will fire off like 16 texts in a row, which are something that will most likely jokingly get under my skin. And then I'll respond with like a 400-word essay, and then the debate is on. Like it is so on. And I'm not lying, this is like a once-a-day thing. But they're going to be guests quite a bit on the show where we tell some of our personal stories, uh, our experiences, and we're also going to do a lot of debating, debating various sports topics, which I think you guys will get a kick out of. And actually, you're going to meet them in just a little bit because they're my first guest on the show. So hang on tight, and um, they'll be they'll be here before you know it. But... Before we get into that segment, I want to give everybody more of a background on who I am, where I come from, what I've done since kind of breaking into the sports industry, who I root for, and all that good stuff. So for those of you who don't know me, I am a 24-year-old washed-up athlete who played football, basketball, and baseball during high school for a cow town in New England, and I am downright crazy about Boston sports. Saying that whole sentence out loud kind of makes it sound like a Tinder bio, but we're going to move right along past that. Um, like I mentioned, I'm a huge Patriots fan. I probably talk about the Patriots like 283 times a day. Um, Patriots fans will realize why I chose the number 283. 
But anyway, I I love the so- the Red Sox. I love the Bruins. I love the Celtics. And I love me some UConn athletics. Um, we're going to back up a little bit, though, because I want to talk about my high school experience. So I went to a high school called Granby Memorial High School in northern Connecticut. Uh, I, while I was there, I definitely considered myself to be a good athlete in high school. And I had uh, opportunities afforded to me where I could have played college football if I had chosen to do so. Um, but ultimately, when it came to picking a school and deciding what I wanted to do with my future, I decided to, I decided against playing. And it was not an easy decision for me because I like live, dream, sleep football. But I knew that it was time to, to call it quits. I had quite a few concussions in high school. I dealt with recurring knee issues, all that good stuff that, you know, so many athletes deal with. And I decided it was time to hang it up. But with that being said, I knew that I still wanted and I needed sports to be an integral part of my life. A, you know, something I could still be around or do or participate with somehow every single day. So after deciding that I wasn't going to play football, I ultimately chose to go to UConn. And UConn was such a good option for me because it was relatively close to home, but also felt like it was far enough away. And I knew I could get a really, really good education. And on top of the education, it was a place with exceptional athletics. Now, remember that back in 2014, UConn basketball was coming off of a dual national championship. So both the men and the women's basketball team were national champs. And there was so much buzz around the school and the state of Connecticut that I was all in on being a Husky. And I consider myself incredibly lucky to have been a Husky for four years. And another really cool aspect of being only an hour away from home was that I was reached out to by my former football coach, the guy who I played for for the past couple of years. And he shot me a text and was like, hey, you know, would you want to come back and help out in some capacity this year? So I was really intrigued by the opportunity um, and little did I know that saying yes to him was going to impact my life in such a way that it did. So basically here is more or less a story of all like the coaching that I've done up till now. So for that first year of college, I came back after getting a temporary coaching license through the state of Connecticut. And I worked a little bit with the quarterbacks and the receivers on the football team. I was a quarterback myself in high school, so that was pretty cool for me. And it was a unique opportunity, I'd say, because I knew all those guys on the sideline. I knew those guys in the huddle. They were my teammates for years before. So it was really interesting now to be on the other side of things coaching them. And you know, with that being said, I wouldn't really consider myself to have done a lot of coaching per se that year I more or less took notes and stats on the sideline during the game I uploaded them to this thing called huddle which is an awesome game film software that was more and that was more or less you know all I really did but as it was happening I was definitely catching the bug a little bit in terms of really kind of getting into this whole coaching thing So I ended up staying with the football team that next season as well. And it was a really special year in Granby. The team had just had an uh, undefeated regular season. It was my brother's senior year. And he put up monster numbers for the second year in a row, 
with some of his best buddies. Uh, it was the school's first ever playoff game, and it was all in all just like a really, really special year. Uh, it was cool for me too because my responsibilities slowly started to increase, and I was involved in some of the coaches' meetings, and I got some of a say in what I thought might work on offense and all that good stuff. So that was cool, and as college went on, my former high school baseball coach reached out to me and was like, hey, heard you're helping out the football team. Any chance you want to you know, come back and help the baseball team too? And I jumped at that opportunity as well, and that was also a really great thing for me. So by this point, you know, having a couple of football seasons under my belt and now a baseball season, I was like, all right, I'm actually pretty passionate about this. I want to continue to really do this coaching thing because I feel like I was making an impact on people's lives, even though I wasn't playing those sports anymore. Like, sure, but I, plenty of people thought it was super lame that I went back to my old high school to help coach, and that's fine. You know, people are entitled to their own opinion. They can say whatever they want. But, like, I really, really loved doing it. So I didn't really give a damn what people said about me going back. It was fun for me. I felt like I was growing as a person. And that's really all all you can ask for out of that kind of thing. So by the time the year, like the next year rolled around, I was helping out the basketball team too. Uh, Coach Hansen asked if I could be, like, another set of eyes at tryouts. And that quickly became more. So... Because I was a full-time student at UConn still, I was really invested into my academics. Like, I promise, Mom, I really, really, really was. I didn't go to all the practices that Granby had for all those sports because I needed to be at UConn to make sure I was, you know, keeping up with my grades. So I would only go to games to help out for football, basketball, and baseball. And I'm also like a complete nerd, and I fully own up to that and admit that when it comes to game film. So I will sit there for hours and hours and hours on end watching huddle tape of football and basketball games, furiously like scribbling, scribbling notes, watching different players, watching the defense, watching the offense, whatever it may be. I was really falling in love with the process of coaching, not just the stuff that happens on game day, like the, like the, the little nuances and intricacies that come along with coaching. So I've coached up through this past winter, and it has been such a thrill for me. I feel like I have grown up you know, so much as a coach, and I feel like I've been able to add a lot to the coaching staff that I worked on. And for me, when I played, I always wished that there was you know, somebody other than my parents or my brother or a teacher or my best friends who I could really talk to about anything, not just sports. And that's what I feel like I've been able to give the players that I coach. Whether, you know, it's a question they have during a game or about the sport or a question about navigating the challenges of high school. I wanted to be a person who they knew that they could confide in and they could trust both on and off the field. Having been someone who was just, you know, recently removed from high school, I knew what it was like. I had been through a lot of the same experiences they were having. With that being said, though, I would say that the first couple of years that I coached, I was probably more buddy-buddy with some of the players rather than being an actual coach for them. But when I really learned how to be a real coach, I think that's when the switch flipped for me. And I've been lucky enough to coach football for five years, basketball for three years. I did baseball for two, and I even did girls lacrosse and middle school cross country. And I figured that 
the more experiences that I challenged myself with, the better coach I would make myself in the long run. Now, with that being said, coaching is not even close to the only thing that I've been able to do since graduating high school within that realm of sports. So something that was important to me when I first stepped onto UConn's campus in 2014 was to find something of structure to join. I didn't know, you know, if that was going to be a club, uh, finding a job, joining an intramural team, whatever. I just knew that I had always been part of a team, went to practice, watched film, all that stuff. And for time management purposes, I needed to find something where I could spend a good chunk of my time. So like, I don't know, like the third day of ever being on UConn's campus as a freshman, I was scrolling through the UConn Job X website where it kind of lists all the openings for student employment. And the first thing that pops up on this feed, uh, this list was a job in athletics. And it was a job primarily based out of Gamble Pavilion, which was the on-campus basketball arena where you worked all the sporting events that happened there. So volleyball and basketball games primarily. And you helped set up behind the scenes for things like spring concert, uh, graduation, open house, the career fair, et cetera, et cetera. So I threw my name into the applicant pool and before I knew it, I was employed. And I, to this day, still consider it kind of like fate that, you know, I'm perusing this job website and three minutes before I logged on, this job was posted and ended up working out. And I was so, so fortunate for that. In all honesty, snagging that job was far and away the best thing that ever could have happened to me at UConn. And I was lucky enough to have that job for all four years of undergrad. Uh, between daily shifts and work event shifts, uh, it definitely kept me busy. I had an unbelievable boss. I worked with people who I now consider some of my absolute closest friends. I got to be on the floor and watch UConn basketball games. You know, like they were those people that would, during timeouts, run out there and sweep. Um, shout out best court sweepers in the nation, Gamble All-Stars. Y'all know who you are. Um, I was able to have access to things like, you know, the Champion Center where, like, the basketball teams practice, the football facility, all these really, really cool places on campus. And most importantly, I got my first glimpse of what working in an athletic department was actually like. So I was coaching in my free time. I was working as a student at UConn for their athletic department. And I also had a couple of other jobs in sports that I was able to do, like, you know, as a summer job. So the first summer job I ever had was at the Hartford Golf Club. For those of you who live in Connecticut, if you ever get the opportunity to go to the Hartford Golf Club, you have to take it. It's private, but it's this beautiful golf course, 27 holes in West Hartford. And I worked as a member of like the outside operations team. So you're helping members, you're cleaning carts, you're grabbing golf bags, you're setting up for outings, you can caddy, all that stuff. And it, it was really awesome to be able to do that for a couple of years. And the same thing, because I worked there for multiple years, um, I saw responsibilities increase. I became like a what they call a starter in the golf world. So, you know, you're telling members what where they're starting out their, their round and all that good stuff. So that was a cool experience to see, you know, me gain more responsibility there too. And, you know, that wasn't the only thing I did in the summers. Um, some of the other summers I 
wrote for a local newspaper covering sports stories for surrounding towns. I stepped in on an interim basis at Granby, and I worked as the assistant to the athletic director there for a couple of months when the office was kind of in the midst of turnover at one of the positions. And, you know, I was familiar with the school and the town and the sports. So I was able to step in and kind of help there for a couple of months. And I also was able to work at a television station in Connecticut for the sports department. And I got a taste of what it was like to work in the TV journalism side of the sports world, which was super fascinating to me. My dad was on TV for 34 years in Connecticut, so I kind of grew up around TV my whole life. It was actually the reason that I double majored at UConn in communication and journalism. For the longest time, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, and like that was the dream I was chasing 100%. The UConn Com and especially journalism department were two awesome programs, and they definitely got me prepared to be that sports broadcaster. But towards the end of senior year of college, I kind of had this change of heart about my future, and I couldn't wholeheartedly put all my marbles in the basket of sports broadcasting when I had doubts in my head about things like cable television potentially becoming a thing of the past in 10 years or whatever, you know, with streaming services and new technology, I just wasn't 100% convinced that this was the right path for me anymore. So I took a leap of faith and I decided that I wanted to work in the sports industry still, not in broadcasting, but in the field of athletics, like working for an athletic department, I mean. So coincidentally, luckily, whatever you want to call it, a job opened up at UConn right as I was graduating to work as a facilities and event management assistant. And I was lucky enough to get that position, which was cool because again, similar to like when I went back and coached all my former teammates, I would now be like working and with the same people who I had been working for, for the last four years. And I'd be working under my same boss, but with, you know, way more responsibility. So it ended up working out perfectly. So I put high school coaching aside for the time being, and I worked super closely with the UConn football, volleyball, and basketball teams. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me because I saw firsthand the ins and outs of a Division I athletic program. You know, I, I, I saw how much time and effort and energy was spent on making things as perfect as possible. And I knew right then and there that I made the right decision going with this job and this new career path. And with that being said, I had aspirations now of one day being an athletic director or the director of football ops at a university. And in order to make those dreams a reality, I I kind of felt like it was in my best interest to go back to school, get my master's that was you know not common journalism, but more suited towards what I wanted to be doing in the future. So it was back in March of 2019 that I started my master's program online through Southern New Hampshire in sports management and athletic administration. And um, I ended up leaving UConn after my one-year contract was up in June of that year so I could really focus on getting my master's. So I swallowed my pride, I left my apartment, I moved home back to Granby, and 
I worked at the high school and I did a lot more coaching as I was uh, finishing up school. So while I was at the high school, I worked as a teacher's assistant. So I was in the classroom helping kids, helping kids with special needs. And that was also, you know, a really, really cool thing for me. Um, it was, I wanted to find something that I could do during the day. Um, you know, I was finishing up my master's, but I wanted something where I would still be working a lot and working with kids and like teaching in a high school setting reminded me a lot of coaching. You know, if, if one of your players on the field doesn't understand something, you have to navigate and teach them a different way of understanding. So it will help the betterment of the team. And I feel like teaching is a lot like that too. You know, if a kid doesn't understand a problem or doesn't understand a concept, how can I reword it or re-explain it to them that they might better understand it? Because in the end, we're just trying to help them, you know, be the best version of themselves that, that they can possibly be. So I was doing that at the high school while I was, you know, working with the football team and basketball team again. And this football season was really rewarding for me because I saw, again, my responsibilities, you know, take a huge step up. I became the offensive coordinator for the football team, which, you know, honest to God, had been like a dream for me. Um, I, I've i been so passionate about football and about offense and just the, the nuances of the game that it was so rewarding to take a team to the playoffs. And, you know, we, you know, we didn't win our playoff game, but it was a big step for our program. And it's a program I've put a lot of time and energy into in the past. And it was, it was just a really, really special year to be a part of. So football season ends and basketball season comes around and, you know, we're having another pretty good year and probably by January at this point, And I was looking on LinkedIn during a free period that I had, you know, I wasn't teaching or anything. And I was looking on LinkedIn and other job websites and I stumbled upon this, this job that was the assistant to the director of athletics at Rhode Island College. And even though I'm not quite done with school yet, you know, as this is being recorded today, I only have five weeks left of grad school. So like we are making the final push. Like we are late in the fourth quarter. But anyway, I figured I would apply to the job back in January and just see what happens. So I didn't hear back for a while and I figured that I wasn't going to hear back anything uh, unless it's one of those, you know, emails that's saying like, oh, sorry, we found another candidate. We're not going to go with you. But all of a sudden, one day I got a call asking me to come in for an interview and then things moved really, really fast. I had two more interviews in the following weeks, a uh, week or two, and I found out that I landed the job. And so within the course of like under a week, I went out to Rhode Island. I looked at like four different apartments and I found one that I liked and I moved to Rhode Island to start this new chapter. And it's, I think it's setting me on a really, really great path. So Rick is a really awesome division three school out in Providence. And I've been working there since February, but I only got a couple of weeks under my belt before COVID-19 decided to really mess things up for so many people. So as of right now, um, here we are in May. I'm working for home primarily. Um, I'm going into the office a little bit when I can, you know, making sure we have all of our masks and gloves and all that stuff when we go in. But for the, I'd say 90% of it is stuff I'm doing at home. But so far, I really, really like all my colleagues. I think this job is really going to open up a lot of doors for me professionally. And I, I really couldn't be more excited to be on board at, at, 
RIC. So that's kind of where we're at right now. And as you guys have heard, I've been able to do a lot of different things throughout the sports industry at just 24 years old. But I am so thankful for each one of those things because I couldn't be happier with where I'm at right now. But every job that I've had over the course of the last like six years or so has taught me incredibly important lessons. And honestly, even though it was like throwing shit at a wall and just seeing what stuck, all of those experiences have made me grow up so much. And, you know, that would be, I'm not here to preach at anybody, but that would be my advice to kids entering the workforce or looking for jobs while in school. Try different things, like get new experiences whenever you can, because in the end, it's just going to make you that much more of a well-rounded individual. And that's what people want to see. So, you know, you know, at this point, enough about me. I've been blabbing for long enough. You're probably bored. Um, but you got a pretty detailed background about who I am, how I've gotten to where I am in my journey. And now, without wasting another second, I want to bring in my first guest, the first guest in the history of playing the field, Wally Hansen and Mike Dombrowski. All right, guys, I am currently being joined by the first two guests in the history of playing the field, Wally Hansen and Mike Dombrowski. Fellas, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's good to be here. Pleasure. All right. So in the opening that I already taped, I already kind of gave everybody a little bit of an introduction about us, um, how we've coached together over the years, a little bit of insight on, I mentioned the whole story about how we have our our group chat and we text in it, you know, 365 days of the year, all that good stuff. And the listeners at this point have heard plenty about me, but I kind of want to open up the floor to both of you guys so you can explain how you've gotten to where you are in your coaching careers and all that good stuff. So, uh, Wally, let's start with you. There's like a big game right now. I'm like, the butterflies are flowing. Like I'm, I'm pumped. <laughs> I know it's good stuff. Oh, what is, I always wanted to, I, I knew as a player, once I was done playing, I got old and couldn't do things anymore. I wanted to, I wanted to coach. I was always told by that, by coaches that I had that if you're not playing, you can coach. It's the next best, best thing. And I always wanted to compete. So I knew if I got into coaching and it started, God, I, I coached, I coached kids when I was like in my early twenties for an AU team, a buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. And I coached basketball, and uh, you know I went to, I went to college at Central, and I was an exercise science and exercise physiology major, and I ran track and cross country there for four years. Uh, I played uh, I played all growing up as a, as a kid, as a youth, yep, and uh, played basketball and baseball my my whole life. I ran. Um, did you, when you kind of got into the whole coaching thing, did you, you didn't just start as a head coach, did you? Did you get like an assistant job somewhere to, or did you? So when happened? I started at Granby, I, I was a head coach of, I started right as a head coach. Okay. Was that my, your first gig as a head coach? That was my first gig as a head coach. All right. So l- l- let me, let me backtrack here. Yep. Uh, again, big game, <laughs> early game jitters. Let me backtrack. So <clears throat> when I was hired in Granby, I was hired as a phys ed and health teacher. And immediately the AD was in the interview and he said, can you coach cross country? I said, sure, I'll, I can coach. He's like, you're the head girls coach. You start in a couple of days. I'm like, all right, let's, let's rock and roll. And then he asked if I could coach track. And 
I coached track that year. I, I coached my first two years, I believe, cross country in the fall with, with the immortal Dennis Lobo and track in the spring with the immortal Dennis Lobo. And, you know, it, it kind of took off from there. I coached cross country for 14 years and track, I believe, for nine years, took a year off and then coached on and off for a couple of years until, you know, the, I started my family. And I coach. I started coaching basketball in 06, 07. And again, it's about competing. I I, I love to to compete. And uh, playing was easy. Yep. Coaching is tricky. Yeah. I from I could not agree more with you. Like playing was way easier than it has been making the transition to coach for me. But Mike, I'm gonna go over to you now. Um, what kind of give us your background to how you got to uh, you know where you are today? Uh, similar story, um, though a little different. My dad was, when I was growing up, my dad was a high school coach. Uh, he won two state championships um, in baseball, and I was bat boy for both of those. So in baseball always was the first love. And then went to regional seven, and winning wasn't the focus there. I, me, I was the most competitive kid on my team, even as a freshman. Um, I used to hate it, it wasn't losing that I hated. It was kids on the bus before the game started saying, we're not going to win today. That that just always drove me the wrong way. And my coaches didn't – they were like, eh, whatever. We're collecting a check. Um, and that bothered – that always stuck with me. Um, played baseball in college. Had a good experience. Uh, decided I was going to be a teacher. I was in politics first. And when you work on elections, it's all competition. It's yeah. – it's yeah, you want your person to win, but it's either we win or we lose. So yep. that was great, and it was like a light switch was turned on. Um, went to Avon, um, got teaching job there, um, but and Tim Curtis was trying to get me to coach basketball, but I was a certified basketball ref. Um, so it was nice during the season. Mike Infantino, who's still on the board, so I'd, I'd ref games with them and stuff, and. It, it was weird to get it from both ways. So here's Tim Curtis who won state championships. He's in one ear. And then a guy I ref with is in the other ear. And it's like great to have those two conversations. Lost my job due to budget cuts. Went to Old Lyme. Um, Old Lyme for a class S school. They have great sports. They're competitive every year. A lot like Granby in that regard. Um, and got involved with the girls soccer coach. We won a state championship there we co-champions with immaculate um undefeated we had a yellow card so i was groomed more through the assistant ranks but i always knew i wanted to be a varsity coach um but i was never that i oust someone to get that knowing how teacher contracts works yep um i remember when i got hired at granby sending an email like i got hired at 9 a.m i sent an email to kim chamberlain who was the ad at the time like at 10 30 saying, I'm coming, you don't know who I am, I want to coach something, um, but I don't want to oust anyone, and I know how the contracts were written. Yep, said, I sure. don't want to oust anyone, can you just, what's available? And I had to start at the middle school, I started girls soccer again there, and now I feel I'm in a good spot with the soccer-baseball combo. Yeah, so you are the, the you are the head coach of the um, Granby Boys soccer team. Not official, not, not officially official yet, but I don't think any other teachers will be applying. Okay, so hypothetically, hypothetically, the boys soccer coach, mm -hmm. you're the head coach of the baseball team. 
and you assist Wally yep, for, yep. so the JV yep. coach. Wally, you are go ahead. Right now I'm the head basketball coach. And that's it for now, right? That is that is it for now. Uh, one of my me. volunteer assistants in baseball. <laughs> yeah, trying to convince I would him. love that. I would love that. His son gets free swings. Of course, it'll be <laughs> absolutely. So, okay. So let's talk about basketball season a little bit. So, <clears throat> the three of us made our connection through working together in basketball, and obviously, this season was a little bit unprecedented, especially at the end because of the COVID-19 outbreak. So I kind of want to, I mean, the freshman season, which I coach and the JV season, which Mike coaches was over that, that had, that had come and gone, but we're in the middle. We just finished the NCCC tournament and we're getting ready for a state tournament. And this comes down and the CIAC decides that they're canceling our um, state tournament. And at, everyone at the beginning was kind of like, what are we like? What are we doing? I was like, are, are we serious? And, you know, obviously, I don't think anyone realized the severity at the time. But take me through a little bit, like, what, like, Wally, what do you tell the seniors of the team? What do you tell the team as a whole? How do you, how does, how does it be, how is it being a head coach in that situation? It's tricky because it's something you never ever experience. And I know it's, I'd rather have, have lost my last game than to have that situation. Cause I, I said it then, I'll say it now, I was numb mm -hmm. in my gut. <clears throat> I felt like there was something bigger mm -hmm. happening. So I, I knew, I, I felt that this was like a, a safety issue. Yep. But talking to the seniors, talking to the team, it was, uh, I'd rather have them in the locker room at the end of a game that we'd lost in the state tournament as opposed to telling them. And I think it didn't resonate a lot with the kids that we talked to. And, and I think Coach D remembers. <laughs> Excuse me. Like, I think they just thought it was postponed. Yeah. Then we play a couple days later. Mm -hmm. and, and when I try to explain it, I feel like it hit a little deeper a few days later when all the stuff happened with the NBA and, you know, with, with famous actors getting yep. sick and, and things became real. Yeah. And in my gut that day, and I know it's easy to say this now, but I, I felt there was something going on i felt there was a safety issue and and i don't I, you know, obviously it was the right decision at that at that moment yeah but it's def it definitely it stung it sucked it was terrible do you feel as if like well you mentioned you've been numb <clears throat> but do you feel like there's been any closure have you gotten any closure honestly no i think no there has not been yeah i really haven't talked much with the team you know, I've, I've sent an email to the parents. I want to have a, have something well, at ha the end you of the year. You haven't really been in school to do so, right? It's like school was canceled a couple weeks, a week or two after, right? You, we really haven't been in. We have we haven't been in school. We right. had that meeting a couple days later, and I, I don't know if I've processed it completely yeah. in terms of like everything that's going on and trying to figure out what the hell we're doing. Yep. But that was weird too when they canceled school because it was you're off for two weeks and then we'll reassess, but then. I mean, seven days into that, or five, four days into that, we got the email from superintendent saying, "No, we start distant." So Distance it's like, learning, yeah. Whoa, wait! Like it was kind of, it was kind of just bang. Like stuff was happening so fast. Yeah, big the time. The process, and then kids were in between seasons, and it was like, well, wait a minute! If if they're canceling a state tournament, there's no way that, that it, it was just. Yeah. It was awkward, and we were in this. We were in the coaches' room, getting ready, and then. Maltesi 
was showing up yep. and he was there. Then he got it. And we thought he was joking. Right. And then it was real. I was like, well, do we not tell the kids? But the kids have Twitter. Yeah, I was. Getting, they all have yeah. that stuff, too. And it's like, yeah. well, here we here we go. Here I, we go. I, I was getting texts like, have you heard anything? And I was texting with, you know, some some journalists in the area who cover who cover sports and like, no, look, this is happening. Um, so it was it was just a crazy experience. And like, obviously, you know, the three of us with the basketball team was one thing. And, you know, we talked about not getting closure or whatever. But for you, Mike, this is this yeah. spring was going to be your first season as a head coach it's at Grand for baseball. Yeah, you're coming out party. And now that gets, you know, scrapped. Yeah. How does that how does that work? There's nothing. There is no, there's no book for this. And I, you know, being a history teacher, I did a lot of research on what the Spanish flu was like, and and I've I I've met with the baseball team, mm-hmm. um, and they've been optional meetings. Some of the seniors haven't come, and the only and, and the the thing I think which has helped them um, is look, if if you look at generations prior to you, your parents, grandparents may have lost their early 20s to Vietnam, yep. Korea. Their parents before that may have been asked to serve World War II, World War One. We're asking you to social distance from each other for six months right. at the longest right. until we have a vaccine or something with electricity. It's it, it's And I think that has helped kids when they look big picture, but it is tough. You, you go back to that and being competitive and – um, and I think having the Google meet sessions have helped, but I mean, the kids, they, yes, I'm their coach, but it's like, I haven't coached in the last three years. It, I right. think it would, it would mean different from previous coaches. Cause it is, they're, they're looking, they're, they're looking for someone to give them a hug and tell them it's going to be okay. Right. But you can't do it. And we don't have answers. No one, no one has answers. And right. I think the thing that helps is professional sports are canceled. Colleges are canceled. So it's right. It's not just high school sports. It's like every other scrapped. state yep. too. So it's, that is not, that is the nice thing, but uh, no, I not think, a good way to no. start your. Definitely not. But I think that's really good perspective about the whole kind of thing. You know, I think you raised a lot of really good points there. Um, so, you know, aside from COVID, I want to talk about a little bit like, you know, digging back into the history books for you guys. I want to know, your favorite memory or most rewarding experience that you've had coaching? Wally, start with you. Can I give you a few? Yeah, bring it on. I'm going to give you a few. More the merrier. All right, so I was hired as basketball coach in 06, 07. That was yep. my first year. Yep. And <clears throat> I had the privilege to coach. We had, we had a really, really good team. Uh, Jeff Robinson, who's the all-time leading scorer, was there. And it was it was a solid team, great year. So the state tournament has started. We had lost the NCAA final. We were 20-5, and five, and we, we drew Winderlocks. We always draw an NCAA team. It, it's kind of crazy how that all works out. And we were down one, I believe, in the state tournament. Our place, place is going nuts, packed. I was probably, I was def- probably I was a fan definitely there. there. Fat, probably fat fan. Kurt was getting rowdy. <laughs> fat Kurt was in the house. <laughs> rowdy. And the bench used to be right next to the bleachers. So I, I couldn't, I mean, that. as bad as you can't hear now if it's packed. Oh, my God. I couldn't hear myself think. And we're down one. There's, I think, 14, 15 seconds to go. And we inbound the ball. I, I, I ha- we probably had a few time. We had a few timeouts. Jeff Robinson looks over at me and he says, Coach, vividly, I mean, like, as calmly as could be, don't take a timeout. 
I'm like, all right. I'm like, I'm a first year coach. Poop my pants. If I take the time out, I'm probably going to poop my pants in the huddle. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm like, all right, let's ride this train. Yep. Jeff Robinson gets the ball. Oh, I remember this. He, he's at top of the key, dribbles to the elbow, pulls up, makes it. We're on to the next round. Of course he makes it. He goes he, and he runs down to the other side of the other side of the gym, bangs the wall, and it was just a great, great moment. So that that's moment one. Yep. Moment two, and again, I talked about how I had coached track and cross country. Yep. So um, you know, as much as I love basketball, the, those I love track and cross country as well. And in 2009, we won a state title. If you rewind the clock back to like 0405 is when I started. You know, you had soccer, you had field hockey. They ruled the Bruce, yep. and which which is great. They have great programs, great traditions. Yeah. And I coached track, and I coached a lot of those kids distance-wise. And I had kids who would say, like, cross-country is, is not the sport. It's not this. It's not that. And I had one girl who said to me, like, you're never going to win with cross-country. You're never going to win. Fast forward, 2009. We, we win the state championship. Bingo. I, I wish – I won't tell the, I say the girl's name. I wish <laughs> – I could like say to her like, "Do you see? Yeah, I told you. Do you see? I told you." And obviously, you know, 2013. You know, you look at that year for basketball, and you know, Kurt, you you were there. You remember the the, yep. the season. Um, you remember getting trounced. Oh my god! In in the NCAA final, Smacked. I mean, got... absolutely crushed. And you know, we were lucky we had a buy because we had we had people that are sick. Yeah, we did. We were we, sick. We were and sick. I think you know, talking to you and, and letting people know that, that hopefully there's people that listen to this. I'm yeah, hoping. Hope, hey guys, hope so. You're a popular guy. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, there was a lot of things that kind of weren't going our way after we had lost that game, but we did get a bye. I think we had a uh, we were snowed out, and then we played East Hampton yep. in the first round, <clears throat> and we we were fortunate to win that game. If you remember, uh, we, we were very fortunate so to win that we game. We were what the three seed. We were the three seed. But I we, think they were like every 20. single game we played in the state tournament was tight. Like it was, it was close. a close game. I was I'm, scouting you that game. Well, yeah, the East Hampton game. Yep. Old line. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Old line. Yes, because you guys played. You played right. Old Sabro. So we exactly. So oh, we. No, 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 no. You were. We on were on the other side, side gotcha. of the bracket. We lost to Weaver. Gotcha. Yes. In the semifinals. But so like you're. That I is was, weird. I was the coach who was scouting you guys. That is weird. That's right. We um. So yeah, like you said, we loot. We get our. We we, we get smacked in the NCAA final. I mean. So if there was a white towel, <laughs> yeah, you know, like when in, in Rocky Four, where where throw the damn towel, yeah, throw the damn towel, yeah, like we, I wanted to. We it was embarrassing to it, be on the terrible. floor, like, but I, you know, we beat Avon a couple, I don't know, a week or two earlier f- to win the regular season title, and then you know we see him again in the Triple C final, yeah. And I think they were just out for blood. They didn't like how rowdy our fans were. They didn't like that you were a loud coach. They didn't like that they had to come play in Granby. And, and that Avon team was freaking good. They were good. They they could have won their division that year. McCurney were, could be the toughest kid I ever had to guard. They in were high school. they were a really great team. And you know you look. But at, we don't. If we don't lose that game, I'm not saying we had to get a, lose by 35 or whatever it was. But if we don't lose that game, I don't think we make a run. We don't. And we don't make a run in the state tournament. So keep going. Sorry we to interrupt. No, no. I mean, where I was going with this. So you know, we we made the run. We we won our our, our quarterfinal game. We won the semifinal game, and then. You know the the championship game against Weaver. 
like you look at it, it, it could be the top two or three games in the in Connecticut history. Yeah, no, easy. And I know I'm biased. I know you're biased. I sure but am. Like, you know, when you're down 21 in the third quarter, and you make that run, and and you come back, and and you win at that that level, that stage. You're at the Mohegan Sun, and it's funny because like I remember telling you guys before the game, like act like you've been there before. Yeah, act like you've been there before. And then as soon as I hit the floor, I took my cell phone out and did not act like I'd been there before. No, I know. Me either. <laughs> I, I was taking it, pictures it, it of the press pass. It was, it's an incredible experience. And I think, uh, you know, winning that game is obviously in, in, in the top two or three moments, top right. moment of, of my coaching career. Yeah. So I'm going to interject again because – so I told you guys in the introduction that, like, I, I played for Wally for four years during high school or whatever. So 2013 was my junior season, junior year. And, you know, like we talked about, we win the regular season championship. We lose to Avon in the NCCC final. And then, you know, as we are playing in the state title game at Ohegan Sun versus Weaver, I mean, the first half was atrocious. Like, it was like that was terrible. not Granby basketball. So And Weaver played well. They I, did. I never said that. And Weaver played well. They did. They did. They played really, really well. They <laughs> came out of the gates really strong. And we're down, I think, 19 at the half. And you come into the locker room, and I – I bust your balls all the time, but you, like I'll I'll gas you up too. You came to the locker room so calm, and I don't th- I don't know what I expected. I don't know what any of us expected really, but you came in so calm, and you're standing there, and you're like, "Fellas, we're down 19, and you know there's 16 minutes left in, in some of your basketball careers. Just go play the best 16 minutes of basketball, and just see what happens." And I know we kind of talked about like you know, let's try to get it to 10 going into the fourth quarter and you never know what happens and we didn't we got we, to didn't. Fif- no, no. we got to 15 but we didn't get it to 10 and then you know mike noise just goes bonkers in the fourth quarter brett hits that shot at the end of regulation champs a monster on defense and then before you know it we 83 81 in double overtime but i i think your halftime speech was so perfect in the fact that like you could have been mad you could have been like you didn't show any of it. You just were even keel and it showed us a lot of confidence. That was like, all right, like every, every single person in that, in that arena. And probably if we're honest with ourselves, we probably counted ourselves out too. I had a couple of buddies of mine that, that at halftime were contemplating going to play blackjack. I know a couple of people who did they, go leave. Like, yeah. <laughs> we go, like Wally was, it was fun to like hang out and, and see yeah. you guys play in the first half, but like, we're going to go gamble. Yep. Yep. Um, but no, that was, it un- was fantastic. Unbelievable. It was an unbelievable moment. Yep. Mike, how about you? Favorite coaching experience? It was that same year. I was the girls' JV coach at, uh, at Old Lyme that same year. Um, our season ended. We were rebuilding. The girls won a state championship the year before, um, and their assistant coach, she left. And uh, I was done refing at that point because the commute from Cromwell to Old Lyme was too far. Um, and Don Bugby, the coach, he asked me to be his assistant. So I did, but our season ended because we didn't qualify for the tournament. Class S school, we had, I think, three freshmen starting. So it was a retooling for the future. But the boys coach, when our season ended, he's like, can you guys be on my bench? Mm-hmm. And Don is an old line lifer. He, funny story, played high school basketball for Jim Calhoun. Wow. Jim Calhoun's first coaching job ever was at old line. He was old line. He was a PE teacher. Wow. How about that? Um, and then left for AIC up in Springfield. But so we were on, we were coaching and old line was, they were, the boys were 10 and 10. 
they qualified for the uh, for the Shoreline tournament. They were we were a lower seed in Class S, but we were focused on playing Valley Regional. Mm-hmm. And he trusted me refing and Kurt Kasher, their coach. He gave me the job. He's like, I want you to scout, just scout Valley. Spend yep. the next week scouting Valley. <clears throat> and I watched him once. They were undefeated at the time. I went back and said, you're going to win. And he's like, what the hell? I gave him a three-page I, I gave him a three-page scout report, every player's tendencies. There were two kids who would take their, – their big score was a post player inside, always took two dribbles with yep. his left hand, would turn to his outside. Yep. And like, he's like, holy crap. I'm like, I'm putting, I'm putting my condo on it. Yep. Um, that's where I live. And he's like, okay, so we spent – the kids, once they made the finals, they beat, we beat Cromwell in the semifinals. Um, Salafia was hurt. No one was resting them, which was fine, and we beat them. We got to the final, and the kids were like, they looked at my scouting report teacher in the building. They're like, wow, coach thinks we're going to win. Yep. Coach thinks we're going to win. Yep. And Kasher, this guy, the parents were trying to oust him. They didn't like him. Um, and they here they are. They were undefeated this year. Probably would have won Division Five this they year. Uh, parents are still trying to get rid of him, but he just has a way to get his team to peak. We go. Uh, and he wanted us on the bench, so Don and I are sitting on the bench. Woods, the very first play, goes into the post. Big catches it. Takes two dribbles. We have a freshman who goes in, strips the ball. We get a layup. Two zip. Valley's, Valley's coach looks over at Kurt Kasher, <laughs> puts his hands in the air. Is like, what? Yep. And like I was sitting there, like okay, and then we just knew. So the game went <laughs> overtime. Great. We won. Valley ended up winning um, the state tournament, and my that job, was a good Valley team. It was a very good. They, Valley they, team. they won Class M that year. They won yeah, Class M. A good, really good Valley team. And my job for the state tournament was to scout. Was to scout Granby. Oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have beaten us. No, you would not have beaten us. Um, a little different. <laughs> well, the the one thing I think that would have given. And still, oh, we're here we go. In Granby, the one thing I think that would have given you guys trouble is Old Lime changed. They changed defenses every. It was one through one zone. They'd go to a box and one. I, They'd go to triangle and two. I hear what you're saying, but when and you here have... we are ten years later, and we still struggle with those one through. <laughs> and, and I'm not being critical. <laughs> but it, I'm not being critical. Hear that other teams, so but one, it's three, an one. institution. It's it's a product of the red. I, good basketball players struggle with. Different zones. I hear what you're saying, but like when you have three guards as good as Mike Noyce, Carlin Champion, and Brett Boozer, I feel like that's the reason we were so good. I feel like you have guards you can trust, like you, like while you can put your faith in that they're not going to, you know, do any ridiculous like turnovers or anything. It was just our guard play was phenomenal. We were able to adjust yeah. so quickly. I mean, Ellington regardless used, of who played against Ellington us. used to throw mm-hmm. all these defenses. When we played like Enfield back in the day, they used to change defenses. They had some ridiculous presses. Enfield back in the day. They were good. They were good. Did you guys scout Old Lyman at all? We did not. See? No. We didn't, played, have, to, we didn't have to worry about you. Play the underdog. So, <laughs> I, so I don't know if I can I, – I, I can't – I had a coach in the shoreline who was going to give me information. I don't. It was different, but it was. Saber? It's funny. It was different in old Saber guy. <laughs> yes, old Saber coach. He, he, he told me I'll, I'll give you in the shoreline. I don't, I don't know if I'm Alistair no, right no, now, but he's good. like, I'll give you. No, it's anything funny. In the he, old he won't listen old to this. Old line and old Sabrooks are rivals, so it's it's fine. Well, he and he said to me like after we we beat him, he said I'll give you any, I'll give you old line because you may play him. 
All right. Which is which is you know he was he was no, confident. You guys, coaches still do. Coaches right. still do all that. But crap. I feel like it's different now. I feel like we do a lot of like our own scouting now. It's not like well, we huddles, don't rely. Huddles change the game. Huddle, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's but, funny though. Like I would scout more then because obviously I have you guys and like I, there's other people I can scout. But like I would just get information and use that and disseminate that. I think yeah. too the the players, people can, and I'm the first one to be critical of AAU and stuff. The kids know each other. They they, do. I mean, even ten yeah. years, like they, five years ago, they it wasn't like no, it's around. different. But like, like we're in the locker room now. You know, we're in the locker room with our guys, and they know everything about mm. the best players on the other team, either mm. from playing at the Y or playing AAU. Social, social, social media, they all, all follow stuff. each yeah. other. Yeah, it's 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 different for sure. But all right, I want to get into. So we talked about some of the most rewarding experiences, some of the best moments coaching. Um, I want to know some of the you know challenges whether it might have been like getting to where we are now but you're both you're both fathers you know mike you're a father of three wally you're a father of four you both got real busy um crazy crazy stupid is it well, like two how for one discount <laughs> yeah two twins, twins. Yeah, yeah you we... both have twins but you know coaching with big families that can't be easy it's like on you guys or your wives or or whatever but i want to know kind of you know coaching isn't always the easiest so i want to know whether it's like parents be uh, we could talk. We could have a whole podcast on parents, but um, just you know what some of the hardships of coaching had been. You, you yeah. want to go with me? Yeah, you started off. I think again, as as we uh, currently, it, it definitely. I think everyone has their opinion, and everyone has. It, everyone thinks they know because with basketball specifically, everyone they they basketball is very popular. They they think they know basketball. And with coaching, you know, trying to relate to the kids, building relationships with the kids, I think is the most important part. And, you know, you could be the greatest X and o, X's and O person as a parent, as a coach. It's about m- motivating kids. End of the day. I could go in with any type of offense, any type of defense. And I'm not saying this is a challenge. I'm saying, like, you're up against, you have the kids for two hours or you see them in, in, during the school day. The parents are with them all day, like I mean, at, at night, and, and they can say something that could be, I don't, a little toxic. They could say like, "Well, Coach Hansen doesn't know what he's talking about," or Coach Dombrowski doesn't know what he's talking about. But it's more than that, because like we, it's it's not about what offense we run, what defense we play. It, it's about like building a relationship with a kid. And I think the challenge is trying to have the the, the athlete buy in the parent buy-in to what you're trying to do. And I think that's a huge challenge right now. I feel like when I first started coaching and it, it, parents were a little more supportive yep. where they, you know, the coaches, they have the power. They have, they're teaching you what, what's going on. But now it's like you have to sell your product and everybody has to buy into what you're doing. Right. And like you said, like if you go, if the kid goes home after practice or a game or whatever, and all they hear at home is like, oh, your coaches know what they're doing. The kids are going to start like, even if it's subconsciously, they're going to start thinking it or have their doubts. And it's, it's just, it's annoying that it's kind of gotten to, to that point. But well, it's gone, it's gone to that level. Like I remember when I, when I was playing, I, I, and again, I'm not a curmudgeon. I'm not. I try to evolve and I try to like be modern with everything we talk about. But you know, when I was younger, the coach would tell me something like, "That's what we do." Absolutely, and you would just compete your ass off, right? And play as hard as you can. Yes. Now it's like everything has to be 
perfect for everybody. Yeah. Like, well, so, why and how come? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and which is okay because, like, I think as a teacher, you want to explain everything, but sometimes it's like, just trust what that we know what we're doing. Yeah. Trust the the you know the the old Joel and B thing. Trust the process. Yeah. We know what we're doing. Right. Because we care. Right. Mike. But I think I mean, along that, the biggest <laughs> shift I've seen from playing to refing and being an assistant coach and now varsity coach, the importance the assistant coaches and the coaching staff has. Yeah. Um, when I look at I I was at Avon. They don't have they they don't have a staff. They don't have the volunteer. They can't get volunteer assistants. Mm-hmm. So when you're the head coach there, it's it's over whether you're the assistant or the head coach. It's just overwhelming. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Right now, I've been fortunate to coach with Dave Emery, um, Don Bugney, and Old Lime with Wally here, and it's like if the staff wasn't what it was, a I wouldn't be doing it, and b I don't think they would be doing it. Right. Um, because not that the expectations of winning necessarily is high. I mean, let's be honest. You look at the teams we play, and we're a bigger town than some of the teams we play. We're a different derg than that. There's competitive advantages we have institutionally. We can't control that. So, yes, we should be winning some of these games. Mm-hmm. When you when you walk in our gym and you look at all the banners, yeah, it's holy a- crap. Like, there is – it's an intimidating – yeah, it's yeah. it's the intimidating thing wood. just knowing, you know, I'm talking to the boys soccer team. I've been having the it's like, guys, we haven't won a state championship since 2005. And like their hearts and like I know that's not necessarily the goal, but the, I have talked to former players who are asking me just because I was associated with Dave, when are we getting the next and like yeah. That's something that doesn't happen at a lot of high schools. No, there's that, there's a prestige in Grand Bay. There's, there's a history. A huge huge prestige there but then it comes back to like talking with dave and i was talking about the goals for next what my goals would be for next year and he's like remember number one goal needs to be having good good people yeah raising good men right it's not putting a stake yeah yeah the state championship is nice he's like but i didn't win one and parents like the kids so you can still I, I i i still think no matter what happens is yeah winning is great but if your staff isn't helping you right and you're not developing good kids that's when i think you have to ask the question should i be doing this yep absolutely all right guys so we have two more topics that we're going to talk about during this um we're going to talk about um the last dance the michael jordan documentary um get into that a little bit and then we're also going to have a little bit of a uh, discussion on the best commissioners in sports so um we're going to get into that all right guys so for those of you who, I don't know, maybe some people have, maybe some people haven't, but the 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls, um, it's called The Last Dance. It's been shown on ESPN for the last three weeks or so, a um, couple more weeks coming up on Sunday nights, but it is, um, it's been awesome. It's been a really, really amazing documentary. I have like pretty high expectations, and I don't want to speak for you guys, but it has far exceeded those expectations, and... I feel like, you know, we were just kind of talking about or we were texting rather about having there's a lot of different generations in the room or whatever. And it's been interesting to hear everyone's take on the whole thing. Um, So I kind of want to know for you guys. I mean, yeah, you saw it live or whatever, but has a documentary shown you more about Michael Jordan than you kind of knew before? Or like what specifically has stood out to you about the documentary? Mike, let's start with you. 
So, I mean, he was, when this was happening, these were my first childhood memories. I mean, we were texting and I think it was, it was either episode five or six when Charles Smith missed the layup. That is the first NBA game I remember from start to finish being a Knicks fan, but I was still a fan of Michael Jordan because everyone who was under the age of 10 yeah. was a Michael Jordan fan. That I mean, he was on every Sunday and stuff. Um, so both of those, but just to watch, uh, t- just to see him and to relive those highlights, like, holy crap, like this guy is, he competes at a level and, you know, coaching with Wally and he's always telling us, you got to compete, you got to compete. I mean, here's a guy who competes even in a game of quarters with his friends. And yeah. I mean, just that one, just the security <laughs> guard, the random security guard. Great, right? That was just crazy. The one quote. And it goes he, back to episode. Pissed he lost. He was, he was pissed. But to go back to what Roy Williams said, like that, the light switch went on and we could never turn it off. It's like, yeah, he couldn't turn it off. But just to relive that stuff was phenomenal. And I, and, and, and I hope they don't go into his personal side because i like how they're focusing on him the athlete and i just keep it keep it um keep it on the app keep it on the athletic side yep wally what about you anything that kind of stood out about the documentary so far it's funny because i think you know you, you know a lot uh, watching him i knew how great he was i mean i watched how great he was like everything he did in terms of his scoring in terms of like how hard he competed. It, it, he was just the most amazing athlete to watch. Everything was so fluid. And as a Celtics fan, and, and you know, the mid to late 80s Celtics were, were a team where I, I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And that's what I grew up with. And I would argue as a young kid that Bird was better. and, and But I, I knew how good Jordan was. Yeah. And, and Jordan was just so good. And I didn't realize how much, how competitive he was. Yeah. And you just see it. Like, he would be, you knew how much, if you watched last Sunday, how he was seething, seething, that people compared him to Drexler. He was mad. And mad. And I would watch all of those games. As a Celtics fan, the Celtics were not good in the early 90s. And they made the playoffs one year. They played, they played Orlando with Dominique. And they, they weren't good. So, I mean... I could watch those Bulls games against the Knicks, you know, that Coach D was talking about, and I could watch it and just enjoy it. And the thing about those Bulls teams with Jordan is that you knew they weren't going to lose. And you just knew it. You knew they weren't going to lose in in the championship series, in in the Eastern Conference Finals, semifinals. And the documentary, what it it shows you is why they they didn't, because Jordan wouldn't let them lose. And Jordan was just so – like. He was so competitive. Just going off that, the last episode we watched, they were talking about they went back to Arizona for game six to Phoenix. And Jordan's like, I'm packing one suit. He's like, I'm not packing two. I'm not there to play two games. He's like, he's like, I'm packing one suit. We're winning game six, and that's it. Like, he, it was a, like, don't get, don't get me wrong. I feel like I had a pretty good idea about how good Michael Jordan was. But I feel like this documentary has taken it to like the next level for me because I, you talk about like this killer mentality. Like Michael Jordan has a killer, killer. mentality. Killer. And watching it too, like Phil Jackson is coming off. Like you hear, hear people say that he's just a guy who wins championships, whatever. He had the best talent. That freaking guy knew how to motivate. Yeah. He knew how to get the most 
Most and, and he knew when to pull the reins in, and he knew when to give him days off. Yeah. So going so going off that, it's funny we were texting about it's like Dennis Rodman specifically. So we talk about we talked about it in the last segment about building relationships. I feel like Phil Jackson. Yes. was a yes. mastermind yes. of forming yes. those relationships. And so like one of these things I had a question about was like, you know, when Dennis Rodman goes into Phil's office and is like, listen, I need a vacation. And Phil's like considering like, yeah, like I'll give him a vacation because he understands that part of Dennis Rodman. But Michael Jordan's like, what the hell do you mean you're going to give him a vacation? <laughs> like, what is your take on that? Do you think, do you think that was smart of Jackson? Because I know MJ was like, Phil. If you tell this man he can go to Vegas for 48 hours, he's not coming back. Like he's – I don't know. What's your take on the whole thing? Would you, would you, do you think it was smart to let him go? Do you think it was – Again, that's I, – personally, I, I think it comes down to Phil Jackson knowing the players that are there. And not that everyone has the same rules, but, yeah, everyone – there's different rules for different players. And the way you're going to be treated is that it would be appropriate as long as we have the same vision – in the goals at the end, but I, I, I think it comes back to Phil Jackson played in New York, and I do think people can say all they want about where you play. New York is a different beast and a different animal. It is. And Phil Jackson wasn't the star of those Knicks teams. He was he was a role player, and I think he embraced that. And deep down, I think Phil Jackson knew that Michael that look Jordan, you were the best who was ever. You, you, you could play anywhere you could win, but you need him if you're there to get to where you want to get. And this is what he needs in order for you to get there. Yeah. And, and it's funny because Jordan joked that, like, I need a vacation. But honestly, would Jordan take that vacation? No, he would not. No. He you didn't. know, Rodman <laughs> legit need that vacation. And yep. we could talk about Rodman all oh, night. He, yeah. We could talk about Rodman. That that's, that's, that's just different. Series. But, I mean, he again, that's a part of knowing your players, knowing who you're coaching. And Jordan, and it speaks to how competitive and how he understands like he needs these players to be a part of it. He he's the one that went into the the hotel room and woke Rodman up, saying like, Carmen, All right, Carmen get Electra. your ass up, Carmen Electra." <laughs> yeah, I mean like, get your ass up. But then that great that the segment of him like you know they talked about the Indian races and and winning the Indian like Rodman was a freak athlete. Yeah, he came like, back refocused. He, he knew he needed him. That was so funny though the Carmen Electra thing. Segment. I don't think I realized Carmen Electra. I was I think I was too too young at the time. She still got her fastball. She's the same. Oh, she so got her fastball. Hey, listen, oh, yeah. is it, if this is a PG thirteen related <laughs> R podcast, I don't know, but she does have her fastball. She's got her fastball. Imagine having a player, right? <laughs> knowing the team that we just had last year, imagine having a guy on the team say, "Hey, can can you guys shoot?" And I'll just stand under the basket and get, collect rebounds for the next now. four hours. No, it doesn't, it ha- doesn't he happen. Was, he was a different breed. He was a different breed, but I think something that kind of going with Jordan's competitiveness, something that stood out to me in the documentary was like the genuine hate that Michael Jordan still has towards like Isaiah Thomas and the Detroit Pistons. Like we are almost 30 years removed from those series and he doesn't want to talk about Thomas. He doesn't want to hear anything he has to say. He thinks he's still a punk. And I was like, I don't, I feel like, you know, there are rivalries in the NBA today, but like nothing like that. And I think that was kind of eye opening to me to see like, no, he still hates this dude. Like, and it's, oh, he's, he, he yeah. hates him. I don't know. It was, just, it was just something I thought was was pretty telling about the whole the whole documentary. Um, and then I think like 
you know, watching episode one and two, I think I was just kind of like just blown away at the beginning. But like since then, kind of really watching the 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 hour long episodes, I think episodes five and six are my favorite because it kind of showed Michael Jordan in this different light. That like you know, Mike, I think you texted like not like villain, but like yeah, something yes. like something like that, and it sh- it showed him that like the media came for him. Like yeah. they they talked about his addiction with gambling and. You know, he went to Atlantic City after they lose to the Knicks. I think it was like, was that 93 or whatever? And he, Michael Jordan has this quote where he says, like, they build you up just to break you down. He's like, shit, man, it's not easy being in the spotlight. And I think it was just so weird to hear, like, he's a superstar. Everywhere this man goes, he is being surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people asking for autographs. And he talks about, like, man, the only place I feel, like, calm and relaxed is in my hotel room. And it's just, it was kind of cool to hear, like, this this superstar, this the best basketball player of all time talk about like he needs you need that time to just get away from it all. So I think that's what makes Michael Jordan great, and and, and we're not even getting to the LeBron discussion because he's not in the discussion. It's he, we're gonna he, we're gonna bring it up. He's in a not, if you want to bring it up, we're you gonna, can. He's gonna, not in the discussion. We're gonna bring I, I want to say that loud and clear. He's not in this discussion. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Michael Jordan, thirty six years old. Okay, thirty six years old in nineteen ninety eight. With all the stuff that was going on, you know, he had had the, the the past championships, but like he has all this going on, and he still plays at a level that just doesn't compare to anybody. We haven't seen thirty six year old LeBron. Yeah. We we haven't. Se- There's no player at thirty six mm-hmm. years old that can play at that level and and with that type of intensity, with that type of competitiveness, and he would make things up. Like I, and I think what's going to come is the um, is a '98 series against New Jersey where he got pissed at Calipari. He and Calipari didn't say anything. He yeah. just didn't like the fact that he was yelling stuff. <laughs> he made stuff up. And like this is the 36 year old Jordan, who, again, there, there's no such thing as load management at that time. No, I know. That's right? There's no yeah. such thing. He's still playing 82 games. He and he's still going into these arenas and and just dominating at a high level. And that's what makes him great is his competitive competitiveness, his drive, his will to win. It, it just it's just uncanny. We we will not see that. Yeah. I I think, you know, going back to my point about like the media painting Jordan in this negative <clears throat> light, and you know, I like I said, we're gonna talk about LeBron or whatever, but nowadays you don't have media like doing that kind of stuff. Like every time I flip on Sports Center like Michael, I mean, um, LeBron James is on Sports Center talking about like, oh, you know, we're in the pool in the backyard, and Michael, I mean, LeBron and uh, Bronny Jr. or whatever are doing alley oop dunks in the pool, and it's like I don't care to see all that stuff. But like, you know, that article that came out about Jordan and his gambling addiction was like, I don't know, I just feel like that doesn't like I feel like that stuff doesn't happen well, anymore. You're right. It's it's the the difference though is I mean social media now where athletes are open books 24 7 Michael Jordan was still I mean he was he was that contrast between the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird area where athletes could be athletes but in the 90s it was different going through school like it was different and I remember in fourth grade having the discussion should athletes be role models well episode six was Jordan said he He says I wish I wasn't like that it was a culture and as a history teacher you start to see this jordan was the closest thing since elvis i mean there was elvis 
And then there's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, he he wasn't Mickey Mantle. He wasn't Elvis doing drugs or he wasn't alcoholic. For him, his release was the gambling, but that was something that people – Atlantic City wasn't something you would tell people, oh, you're going – like Atlantic City was that quiet desert place. No one really knew that was there. And even in the sports media landscape, there was the fan in New York. Boston didn't have it yet. Ordway right. wasn't until the late 90s, right? No, and, no. I mean, it, 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 New York was the only Middle one that had life. WFAN. ESPN wasn't what they were. Sports Center reruns were just reshown yeah. hour after hour. Okay, no, that's a good point. That, so, that's like, I mean, so point. that piece, so Jordan is really the first one where it comes out, and he didn't grant a lot of media. Like, he was. So, I do think th- these authors, they were trying to find, okay, what can we find on him to yeah. s- expose that here he is. A human being, and even Jordan's acceptance speech in the Hall of Fame, it wasn't one of the all-time greats. No, no, no. Like he had, I think, a a personality. I mean, okay, he had a personality flaw, whatever it is. Yeah. But you put him on the court, no one. But I like, I like seeing that stuff. Like it makes you more of a human. It makes you more normal. You don't, you know, we talk about being Mm -hmm. on that pedestal, but like. You want to call it a gambling addiction? He said he didn't have it or whatever, but like it, it normalizes him. It's it you know, it makes him more relatable. It's obviously he is a freak on the basketball court, but maybe he's more normal than you think off the court. And I thought it was cool to see him like shine that light on him in episodes five and six. Well, it's funny as someone who didn't really see him play, yeah, and watching this documentary, he comes off as genuine in, yeah. in interviews. Him now, absolutely. I mean, does he not? Absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, I don't. Just the whole thing has been so well done. I, like I said, it, it's exceeded my expectations. And I was telling you guys, I when the series came out, I was like, why did they need ten episodes to talk about Michael Jordan? And now I'm sitting here like, ten's not enough. I need like twenty because it's it's just it's it's so cool. Because like again, I didn't see him when I was growing up. I didn't see Michael Jordan play, so I. Like this documentary has kind of given me a lot of perspective about what it was like to watch him, and I was like, "Damn! Like I wish I I could have watched him in his prime. I, I take him every day of the week and twice on Sunday over LeBron." But I just it it's been an awesome awesome series so far. But something that I did want to talk about too was the the Jerry Krause situation. As the <laughs> he was a, he was he was a GM, right? Yes, GM. Yeah. GM, yeah. So have you ever seen? And I, the documentary did a great job, like kind of painting this picture for everybody. But like the genuine disdain that Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen had for this man, like it was like they they hated him. They did not. They I think they appreciated the facts a little bit that like he did he did form that team, but like they couldn't stand him. They couldn't. Go ahead. You're right. And again, it comes down, and you still see this in sports today. Former players that are GMs and coaches are treated differently by players than GMs and coaches who have never played before. Clearly, Krause was a GM who never played basketball before. Clearly. And when you look at when you look at Krause, I, I wish he was still alive. The fact that he's dead, so he can't tell his side of the story. But I, I think in Krause, there was a quote with him in the last episode where he said, we're a great organization. Yes. Uh, no, you're mm-hmm. not. What did the Bulls do before Michael Jordan? <clears throat> right. They were a laughing stock. Correct. What have they done since Michael Jordan? 
They messed up the Derrick Rose situation. Royally screwed that they up. They can't get Anthony Davis yet, and the dude's from Chicago. Dwayne Wade, they mismanaged the one year he was. Yeah, they did. So you have to. I do think Kraus, what he was trying to do is say, we're trying to become a great franchise. And if we can win one without Jordan, then I think we do start to elevate because the only two great franchises, and question for you guys, can you come up with other great franchise besides Celtics and Lakers? Maybe the Knicks. Knicks. Is the third I'd say one. the Knicks. I'd say I the don't Knicks. think there is another one in. The NBA, those are really the only three. Yeah. In it. No, you're right. No, you're the right. Spurs right. haven't had the history. We agree with Dombrowski. I know. That doesn't, have, guys, that doesn't happen very much. Right? The Spurs, I mean. Spur, I mean, Spurs, you can say. But they were not before Pop. Nothing. And, Even and, with I Robinson, mean, Tim Duncan. they were coming in. Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan. Stud. But it was Pop who brought the. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Right? But like. Like Jordan, like Tim Duncan, like those are so they're players. emerging as a great franchise. I would agree. But do you guys understand? Like, do you like see where Pippen and Jordan were coming from? As and players, yeah, they want to get yeah. like Scotty Pippen was criminally underpaid, like criminally. Signed, they told him not to sign the contract. The owner said, "Scotty, you sure about this?" <laughs> I know it was in the it was in the doc. I know. I know. You sure about this? But then, and like, the Kraus thing. Let's go back. Like, yeah. If early, I think it was, I don't know what episode it was. Episode two, like when Jordan was injured. Yeah, yeah. That pissed off Jordan. And like, yeah. And you, as yeah. you know, with yeah. Isaiah, Jordan holds grudges. He does. That pissed him off. Like, yeah. you're not going to tell me I'm going to play. I want to play. But to Jordan's credit, he didn't. He didn't go in the game when he was injured. Like, yeah, the time, whatever. He was coachable. They had a minute restriction or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They because they had the point where it was like the <clears throat> the last like 20 seconds of a game. They're like, oh, you've hit your 10 minute mark, or whatever. He's like, you're not going to put me in the last 14 seconds of the game. And he's like, no. But yeah, no. He was. He was. I feel like he was coachable. Um, all right, so I know. We- <laughs> and, and, and just to finish that, yeah. every every movie, every documentary needs a villain, and the dead guy is an easy villain. No, he is. Yeah, right. I mean, you're not. The- but I, I mean, I thought he- I thought Krauss came off as a tool. I really, I did. I thought he, he really did. Is he that much different? Is he that much different I than just think he any credit. other general manager? No, fair enough. I just think he wanted credit, and I think he oh, of course, he wanted yeah. to be. He- well, it was like he wanted to be included with the guys, like dancing on the bus. Jordan's like, sit down. <laughs> yeah. But he also wanted like he wanted the next best thing, which was, was you know, coup coach. And yeah. then, you know, the last – we're talking about Dan Marley. Yeah. Like he wa- – that's the next – like what's what's next? And, what's to get, next? and to get on that, they did get Krause saying they would have drafted – Coup coach. They would have drafted Samson number one. Oh. They, they wouldn't have drafted Jordan. So if – Krause really wanted the credit. You mean Olajuwon? Yes, Olajuwon. Olajuwon won. It would have been telling if there was video of him saying Jordan was our – if we had the number one pick, we were picking Jordan. Yeah. Then I I think he could have gotten credit, but he was – that footage they showed said he would – we would have gone center number one, and we were left with him. Yeah. So there's that too. I mean, going back to when he was drafted. All right. So now we're getting into this – I know – while you shared your thoughts on it briefly, but the Michael Jordan versus LeBron, call it a debate, um, about who's the greatest of all time. I just, no giving you the perspective of a 24-year-old who has grown up in the LeBron era, yeah. I I think MJ's the GOAT, and I don't think it's particularly close. Um, you know, obviously you have MJ, six rings and six tries, and six finals MVPs, but and I, and I just feel like, I'm not saying LeBron couldn't have played in the 90s or whatever with when Jordan did but oh, I, but I, I'm sure he would have been great but 
you know, you seeing this documentary, the thing about the Pistons, like if you come in this lane, you're going to get hit and you're going to go to the floor. So are you willing to be injured to score a basket? And I'm like, you see MJ over and over and over again, sacrifice his body, go to the paint, get fouled, get knocked to the floor. And I'm just like, I don't see LeBron doing that shit. LeBron is like, LeBron, I can't stand the flopping. I feel like he has referees in his pocket. He's, you know, he is the best player on the planet right now. So people are like, oh, keep him, on, keep him in the game. In his pocket. They, they joked about that. <laughs> Barkley joked. I, I suppose so. Jordan. But like, I just, the, the crying for fouls. I just, I, I, and I feel like, you know, people talk about in the, in the, the debate, call it a debate, you know, oh, well, Jordan had Pippen. Well, LeBron literally formed a super team to go. Dwayne Wade was freaking good. Freaking good. Like he so, was at the pinnacle of his existence, and he was freaking good. So you can say Dwayne all Wade you want. Dwayne Wade won too. Dwayne Wade won one. Dwayne before. Wade. Without, he did without, without LeBron. Yeah. yeah. So LeBron didn't win without him. Without Wade before, but like I just think like you know, so you, the the Pippen thing bothers me. Like oh, he had you know Batman Robin. Well, LeBron had to go f- make a super team to win his first one, and he he won three or whatever. But like Pat Riley too. or two with Miami, <laughs> but. Call. But I don't know. Just what's your take on the whole thing? Is it even close? It's not. So let, let me just say this: like LeBron is a great player. LeBron is a fantastic player, but I, I mean, I've watched so much of LeBron being a Celtics fan who who've watched those series with the Celtics when he was with the Heat, when he was with Cleveland. You know, there are instances where LeBron would get to the basket where he would just lower his shoulder and then score, and then without any resistance. And that would ha- this happens a lot in LeBron's career, and I don't care. There's probably gonna be people like what Hanson doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I do, because like think about Michael Jordan and think about like those Pistons series. He would they made rules to follow him and <laughs> put him on his ass. The Jordan rules were a crazy part of that documentary. It like, is, it is, and like, that. but in the in the great the, again, to, I could talk all night about this, but like with Jordan. His greatness was like he kept getting back up, and then like the Pistons were were, were great because like then like all right well, screw Jordan let's pick on Pippen now, and he and Pippen wouldn't get back up right. But then finally obviously they overcame that. My point is that like LeBron, and it's not fair to him to say that he wouldn't be able to take this, but like he hasn't had that resistance. I don't and know if he could take it. You talk about load management. He's like the. The king of load management. He, he is. Yeah, he's had his. He has a season. What is eighty-one, eighty-two games? He's had his season. I guess. I just. But with 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 Jordan, you know the the difference is that like he his skill level with like kind of countering all of that stuff with like the, the Pistons being physical, like you watch his moves, like he and he's able to like make shots and 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 get himself in a position to shoot and and get to the basket and do whatever he wants. LeBron sometimes will like make a move to the basket, and it's more like, okay, he's six eight, he's two hundred sixty five pounds, he's gonna score. He's a Jordan. Jordan six six, two twenty two thirty, solid. Different. But he had to adjust. Different. He, he was just a more. And he'll lock down the other team's best player. Yep. While, yes. While yes. That, that's I think the when I look at the two. Now LeBron's best series was was it twenty sixteen in Cleveland when they won when they beat Golden when State? when they beat Golden State yeah. Yeah. I think that was the closest he was to maybe maybe saying he's Jordan, but to me to me the closest I've seen is Kobe. Kobe to Jordan. Just yeah. based on that compete that yes. that compete yeah. factor in the desire to I hate losing 
so much. Also, just going and, off that. And the, the Browns more like magic. The Kobe thing. Which is not bad. Not is, bad at all. Good. Those first five minutes, you texted the first five minutes of episode five that when it's talking about Kobe. That, that you said goosebumps. Like, that was goosebumps. goosebumps. Like, Kobe, like, kind of, you know, giving Jordan credit. He's like, everything I've I've done is, like, you know, a large part because of Jordan. And he said, I don't win five championships in Los Angeles without some of the tips or pointers mm-hmm. or the – the, like he felt like he was like the little brother to Jordan, yes. and Jordan didn't let people in very often. No. And Kobe was in, so I I don't know. That was just you know obviously, in the since Kobe's passed, it so, might mean more, but it's just crazy. One of the nuances of that is that like you remember Jordan talking to the guys in the East locker room, they're like he's just gonna go one on one. He was talking <laughs> trash about Kobe, <laughs> and they, I don't think they went into that that much. He was like that that, that with that Laker boy. Yeah, that Laker boy going to one on one. But that's that's Jordan being competitive. Like, like, I'm not giving an inch to We're anybody. not losing an all-star game. I'm not yeah. losing this freaking all-star game. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. But, like, yeah, you knew Jordan would, behind the scenes, would, like, oh, okay, I'll talk to you, Kobe. We'll, yeah. we'll have this conversation. We'll, yep. we'll talk. Mm-hmm. That's what Kobe said, like, on a turnaround jump shot. He's like, he gave me a couple solid tips, and we had a good conversation. And Kobe's turnaround. What did he say? I was, turnaround. I was a kid who was shooting air balls. And yeah. He taught me how to, you know, it's... No, it was just telling. It was a pretty crazy thing. But, um... Anybody else have any final thoughts on the Jordan thing, or we're going to move on? Move on, kids. Watch it. Watch <laughs> yeah. that watch shit. Seriously, watch it. Watch it. Like, it is like especially, Appreciate. especially from someone who's the younger generation. It has been, it's been moving almost. It, like it, it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been so awesome to watch. And I, I, like all the freshmen I coach this year. Watch it. <laughs> all, watch all it. like. Put it, put it on. You're gonna learn something. You're gonna you're gonna see what it was like to compete at the highest level day in and day out. And I'm gonna keep I keep going back to it. But like in practice, I mean he every practice he's talking practice. smack. He's going as hard as he can. You're telling Scott Perot to hey go harder, go yeah, harder. I mean if you if you have a, someone like that leading and just from like a, a pure physical standpoint, you're gonna. I'm, I'm someone else on that team. I'm gonna try to play it my. 100% all the time, too. So, I don't know. Just Imagine if a kid from out of town showed up at open gym and, and our guys were like, treat him like Tony Kukoc. <laughs> I know. We would all be happy. <laughs> Let's go. I've, I've asked for fights in practice. I've asked for, like, who's fighting today? I know. Eh, let's just be happy. No, it's it, – we. I'm going off on a tangent here, but football practice back in the day, the, uh, when we played, we were like, there needs to be some kind of fight. Not like a fist fight, but there needs to be show some passion. Yeah. It can't just be like this lovey dovey, you know, everyone's high fiving all the time. There needs to be some sort of competitive nature in practice. In? Are we all in together? Yeah. Or are we doing our own little I thing? couldn't agree more. So um the la- like the last segment for this episode, we're gonna get into uh the best commissioner. So we're gonna talk about the four the four commissioners in the major sports and we're gonna get into that a little bit here. So when you talk about the commissioners in all of the major sport, like American sports, you have Bettman in the NHL, you got Goodell with the NFL, Adam Silver with the NBA, you got Manfred in the MLB. So, the reason we kind of threw this this topic in at the end is because we've had, you know, texting conversations where it's come up and we've had, you know, different <laughs> di- call them differences of opinions. Bring it, <laughs> Mike as the uh, antagonist per usual, but I. You know, I, I'm curious to actually hear when, when you guys rank them, from from you know best to worst. I kind of want to see where you guys where you guys land in some of that stuff. So, 
Mike, we're going to start with you. Give us your, your one through four, one being the best. Number one has to be Roger Goodell. Has to. The guy's been around since 2006. Took over for Paul, for Paul Tagliabue. And instantaneously, right, when you're talking about a guy who gets booed and people think it would affect him, being a WWE fan like I am, he is Vince McMahon. Ugh. He is, and he plays. He plays the heel role as well as any any owner, any as anyone that I've ever seen. And yes, we can get on him for the concussions, but I think that goes. I will. Don't worry. And the it's concussions, coming. I think, goes. It's it goes before him, and we can get on. We can get on him for how he's handled some suspensions or non suspensions, but. Can we bring up Rob Manfred for that as well? Can we bring up Gary Bettman, who's been commissioned for almost 30 years, and they have lockouts every other year. Yeah, Their well. salary cap is still only $80 million, which is the lowest of the professional sports. Um, you, you talk about NHL franchises moving around like people change their underpants. Uh, it, it's, it's not a good situation. When you look at Roger Goodell, Here's a guy who he's an idea guy, but he implements. Ugh. When they talk about moving <laughs> moving games to prime time, moving games to Thursday night, it's awful. He made it. You can say it's awful. People watch. The, I, it's the highest rated show on Thursday night. Well, but the product Who's is it bad, competing though? against, it's, which I, which is a, which is a smart Goodell move. I mean, it's smart from a revenue standpoint, but players. Players hate it. They talk about it very openly how much they hate Thursday night football. You talk about some of these guys who play on Sunday afternoons. And, you know, these linebackers, it's like equating it to getting into like three car crashes at 50 miles per hour. And like, hey, get your body right to go play on a Thursday night. It's just it makes no sense. I won't sense. disagree, but do the players elect the commissioner? I don't know. It's the owners. The owners elect them. I, I just Commissioners feel- are elected by the owners. And what's interesting with Goodell, there were, they, it took six straw votes before. The, he was kind of just the consensus. Here's a guy. Yeah, we have to. So he's been backed in a corner even from day one. But here's a guy when everyone was canceling around him, canceling this, canceling that. He said, no, the NFL draft is going on. Genius blank and move. I commend him for that. And I I think that's timing, though. Yeah. That's timing. I mean, it's. Has Adam, and, and I think you guys will probably put Adam Silver one. I will. Has Adam Silver even came out with a plan for no, when NBA is in a return? I, I think the way Roger Goodell has handled COVID 19 has been very, very, very well. But I will say he has a huge, huge advantage. His sport was not actively going on. There were no fans in the stadiums. No, Mike, there were not. Don't the, give me that look. The, <laughs> for the, the individual draft workouts. I guess, but like all these coaches have said you can just do it so easily online. You set, can't players send in tapes. They have meetings over Zoom. What's the difference between meeting someone over Zoom or meeting someone face-to-face? I feel like it's not that big of a, di- a deal. But you have Adam Silver, who is actively in the middle of a season. Bettman, who's actively in the middle of a season. So I think it's a it's a whole other animal when you have the fact that like you're you're dealing with playoffs and you're dealing with an, uh, a season in the towards the towards the end of the regular season and accommodating for how are we going to make it how yes. we make games happen where are the games going to be played are fans going to be there it's a whole different animal if this happened Have in the season s- ticket owners been reimbursed yet i don't know Have, well you're, they, you're, where's you're, the commissioner with the leadership like whether to pay i agree the, mark cuban's been phenomenal he's not the commissioner i agree but i think the like i said covid 
handling it has been Goodell's been great. But Goodell's in a good position because he like, is like with the with the NBA and the NHL. And, and, and again, I put NHL on the back burner. Mm-hmm. No offense to NHL. Yep. But like you're, you're, you're in season, you're, you have to deal with like what each state in terms of the governors, what are the restrictions, what's happening. Yes, you can move it to like different cities, but like it, it, their hands are tied. And it's a tricky situation. Can they be created more creative? Yes. I, I don't know why we haven't heard more about the NBA and Has- NHL. Adam Silver come out and explained why every NBA player was tested for COVID and other people in those states haven't. He's, he has not. He's just he's been sitting on his hands, and I think he gets just my opinion. He gets too much credit for everything David Stern. And if you look at David Stern, David Stern's the closest thing to Roger Goodell. That David Stern played that heel role. People hate him. People are saying, "Oh, the nineteen eighty four draft was rigged." So Patrick Ewing, when it was lottery, this lottery. David Stern, he just embraced it, said, bring it. Just keep bringing the hate. And he grew the game. China, David Stern. Adam Silver messed up the whole China fiasco in this NBA season. No, started. he but did that not. Wasn't his I fault. think he saved it. I think he. I think that was I, – I, I commend Silver for what he did. he did. I think he did a good job handling it. I really, really, truly do. But before we get into this, I feel like we're really going to get into this. But like, I want to know your one through four. So you have Goodell at one. Who do you have following him? Goodell one. And then I think I think Silver would process of elimination will go to Manfred. I think has blown some blown some opportunities. If he can make one change in baseball, and I don't know what that one change is, but just get, make one change in baseball, I think he moves to number two, and I would put Batman four. Wally, what about you? A- NHL is last. Yeah, it's, it's not close. Batman's Manfred last. is third. Man- Manfred. I mean, MLB needs to change their their way completely. I have to go Goodell second just to piss off Dombrowski and, and then Silver one. But, like, I, I hear what Coach D is saying. I hear, like, Goodell, Goodell is doing a lot of great things now, especially. And, you know, we're going to talk about the Flategate. And, and, oh, and, and, I mean, I got, I'm loaded. Don't you worry. And, and, and weirdly, I get, like, and taking my Patriots hat off, yeah. I, I get why he did what he did. I, I, I get that. It's frustrating to say that now in 2020. In 2014-15, I was I was pissed off about it, yeah. and I, think I still am. Well. So don't wait. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coming. It's, it's dumb. It, it didn't make any sense. But the the Spygate situation pissed off all the owners, mm-hmm. and and Goodell had to make that move. He had he had to. So uh, for me, that was his first act I'd, as commissioner. To one of his first acts, yeah, because it was 07. You know, it wasn't Rob Manfred. Let's uh, just slap on the wrist. So for me, my one through four is I have silver at one. I have Goodell at two, and that is swallowing a lot of pride, putting him at two. I have Bettman at three, and I have Manfred at four. I think Bettman, I don't know a whole lot about. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, he's been in, he's been the commissioner for twenty seven years, runs a, a pretty good operation. I like the expand. I I like like the Vegas team took off when he moved the team to Vegas. It took off. I I just don't know a ton about him. I think Manfred is not a good commissioner. I don't think he's done a whole lot. I think he's handled a lot of. Some of the scandals poorly. Um, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this MLB season. If he can kind of, I think pace of play has been an issue for a long time. If mm-hmm. he can get this season up and running, in the midst of this crisis, I think you know he deserves some some credit in for 2021, that. Twenty twenty one, the player's contract does expire, so that's going to be his first, his first, I think, real credit that Manfred for, for yeah. Manfred yeah. in baseball. That's I think to be his one. That I think is his biggest thing because the, the the teams are in good spots financially. They have a lot of the revenue coming in with the TV contract. 
the oldest stadium out there. Can anyone know the? I mean, there's Fenway, and then every other stadium's brand new. I mean, everything is every. All these teams have new stadiums, which is good. They're in a good spot. But then you look at Goodell. Oh. What does he do? He adds another playoff team. Genius. What has Silver been talking about for three years? Let's change the playoffs. And he can't do anything. Like Silver is. I like that guy. idea, by the way. He, I like that idea. But I know you haven't seen it. It hasn't come to fruition. He talks about things and he doesn't. Boom. But you know, And I do give him credit for the advertising on jerseys. Yep. Great move. 100%. Sterling. But Goodell would do that in 20 minutes. I feel like. I again, I have Goodell at two, so it's not like I think he's done a poor job. I just, while you took your Patriots hat off, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I I feel like you know, the way he botched, call Spygate what it was. There's no doubt the Patriots messed up. I wouldn't even call it cheating. I think it was a misdemeanor that like everybody was recording. If you actually like. I highly encourage people to go actually look. Research at, it. Spygate is not as bad as you it's think. It's not it as bad as you think. Like Kids, go, it's not as bad as you Jets think. Jets fans, like, go watch it because I promise it's not as bad as you think. But I, it became a misdemeanor. It should have been a misdemeanor, and it became a huge thing. I agree to your point. It was his first kind of act. The owners were pissed about it. He came down hard. Fine. Deflategate was a goddamn joke. That was a joke. No, that was a joke. But that, but that, was, a, that was a thing. He didn't come down hard enough in, in terms of the owners. Right. No seven. Correct. That, and, and that's why the play game. And the so, fact yeah. that it was a playoff game too, I think backed him in the corner. I guess, but man, like has, that's the only thing I can. So think you of. have Deflate Gate, and then you know that we talked briefly about the concussion thing. I think the concussion thing, you know, I don't think he when that movie Concussions came out, he you know said it was all like a mm-hmm. baloney and all this crap. I just I don't I don't believe he handled that situation well. And what really really bothers me more than anything is. I, well, I think he handed, handled Bounty Gate with the Saints poorly, too. So you talk about Deflate Gate, Spy Gate, and Bounty Gate. I don't think he did a very good job at any of those. But the Ray Rice situation, when he only gave him a two-game suspension, I know it was before the tape came out, but it was laughable. It was it was, it was, it was laughable. Awful. That was That was embarrassing on behalf of the NFL. So you have that situation with Ray Rice, and it only gets rectified after the fact. Like, it doesn't, like, I don't know. I, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And then even this last year with Tyreek Hill and like, you know, you have recordings of him and his wife speaking about, you know, saying like even Kareem Hunt. Yeah. He just handled the domestic violence stuff poorly. I don't I don't I don't like it. I don't think he's done a good job about, with it. And I feel like the NFL has flourished despite him. It is the biggest sport in America by a mile. In grad school, like I had to do some, you know, revenue thing about it. And, you know, they're making like sixteen sixteen billion dollars. The next closest is the NBA at eight and then baseball and the NHL at like two. But I I do think Goodell has done some good things, but I just think the bad outweighs the good in a lot of these situations. And I I think again, I think the I think the league has flourished despite some of his shenanigans. Moving the NFL draft from city to city. I like it. How come the NBA stuck in where, – where's the NBA? Is Brooklyn? I don't know. Imagine if the NBA took advantage of that and moved their lottery to the team who gets the number one pick, gets to host the draft. No, I hear you. I hey, think No, you, you make great points. Tanking's an issue. You make great points. I hear you. I, Goodell has done good things, a but good I, things, a lot of good things. But he's also done a lot of really bad things that I just – I don't – I can't get – I you can't – Adam Silver is a guy who I think absolutely – Loves the game of basketball. Yes. And I, don't get me wrong. I know we talked about it. I think he 
he was handed a very, very, very good situation when David Stern left. He was handed that on a silver platter. But I think he's done a lot of good things. I we talked. What, what good? What good is he? Besides the advertising, players players love him. I don't. If you talk about, if you like, go look up. People. So the super teams are good for. You think super teams have been good for basketball? I don't think they've been fantastic, but I don't think it, I, they haven't hurt the bottom line. They haven't hurt the bottom line. And when we, took, when we look at the NBA. Relative, relative to the NFL, no, but the NBA, yes. I just, I agree. I just feel like he's like the gold standard. I think players want to be in his league. I think I, I think owners don't have a problem with him. I think, I think he's a very, very, he very good commissioner. James Dolan pretty well. He hasn't wow. handled the James Dolan. Situation. I think he handled the Houston thing really well with Daryl. What's his last? I don't. The whole China thing that happened this he year. Did. Uh, Daryl Morey and, and the LA Clippers, the, yep. the Sterling situation, yeah. was one of his other big things. I, I may have seemed like an easy thing, but I think it was. I think he did a good job. And I'll say this about Goodell: I feel like with sports now in 2020, you have to evolve. Goodell has evolved. Like with, yes. with I think he's gotten ahead of the. I mean, he's gotten ahead of the concussion stuff. He's gotten ahead of the like like with the with what we're going on with now with the draft. I think MLB. You know, I was watching a game the other day with the, it was the '86 playoff game, Angels Red Sox game five. Red Sox came back to one. Pitchers get the ball, they pitch. <laughs> they get the, Calvin Schrole. It's eleventh inning. Calvin Schrole gets the ball. He pitches the ball. It doesn't take them like five hours to pitch one pitch. Yeah. Fix that, MLB. Yeah. The Fix pa- it. The pace of play has been atrocious, and they talk about it for all this time. Like watching Chris Sale pitch every five days for the Red Sox is a joy. It's, it's just he great. catches the ball and he throws that, it. That's how baseball is meant to be played. Yes. Baseball doesn't have that's why people don't like baseball. Yet. Like to me, if I was commissioner first day, team number one pick can be international draft. Yeah. It doesn't have to be domestic. Yeah. Yeah. There's things. They can do it. If I was commissioner of the NBA, I'm getting rid of that 18. You got to go to college for one year. Yeah. Dumb, 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 dumb. That's something Adam Silver can do with the stroke of a pen. Why doesn't he do it? I don't know. Well, I mean, the same thing with the NBA. Like, teams tanking. Have we not figured that out yet? David Stern did not do this either. You know, the lottery, you say what you want about the lottery, but, like, you're right. Like, yeah. let's, have a, let's have a playoff. Have a playoff. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, have a, a let's playoff. let these teams compete yep. for what they want. The number one pick. Let's I, play. I do like what Goodell has done in the playoff format for the NFL. I think the two by thing was like, meh. You know, you see a mm-hmm. lot of two seats win. I think it puts this distinct pressure now to try to get that number one seed in each conference because, like, as a Patriots fan, the pet when the Patriots win Super Bowls, a lot of the time they're the two seed. The two seed. Yeah. They're the two seed a lot of the time, and yeah. it's like you know, it, and it kind of you know, let's say let's say you're a season ticket holder or yep. nope. Screw that. Let's just say you're a fan and you have tickets to game 15 or game 16 of a of the of the Pat schedule or something. If the Patriots have locked up the two seed, matter. they're not playing anybody yeah. good. And as a fan, I'm like, I'm I'm upset. I'm like, I paid a lot of money for these tickets, and like, I'm not going to be able to see the best players play because they might be getting arrested or, or not play the whole second half. And I think Goodell making it okay. No, we're only going to have one team on a bye. We're going to have seven teams on each conference. Was a genius move, and I. I don't like complimenting him, so that, that says a lot. So. And I think institutionally, people talk about the bottom line. Because of Michael Jordan, because of David Stern, the marketing model, you could have a robot being the commissioner. The marketing, the NBA individual players can be marketed better than any other sport. Baseball does the worst blanking job I've ever seen with Mike Trout. Mike Trout should be— Oh, baseball's terrible. So bad. Mike Trout should be if if he was in the NBA he'd be worth 
quarter of a billion dollars yep. just based on marketing stuff. And Major League Baseball doesn't doesn't help with that. But if Major League Baseball can get out early and they can get a season in, whatever that looks like this year, I I think Manfred would have to get. And, and Mike, to your point, in a, we want, we talk about the Jordan documentary. Like to your point, what did Jordan say? He said like. It wouldn't matter if I if I average two points a game. No one want to fuck. No one. <laughs> no one want to talk to me. But Mike Trout has the numbers. Mm-hmm. He yeah. says that, like my my ability, my skills speak to like. That's why I'm marketing. Mm-hmm. Why? What is MLB doing? Not that. I what are they doing? Yeah, that's, that's why it, I have. That's Manfred why Manfred should be. You're right. Manfred should be like. 18th yeah. <laughs> time, like, behind like lacrosse field because it's like whatever sport Tennis. seriously yeah no I hear you it's been like, what are they doing I know it'll be interesting do you, last question do we wrap it up but do you do you think the MLB is going to go with this three division thing with the the west plays the west the central plays the central and the east plays the east do you think that's the only way it gets done I I, I don't know I think that I think the proposal out there is great I with the players union and this is the blessing and the curse major league baseball is the best the strongest players union yep um what are the owners that do if mike trout whose wife is pregnant if mike trout says no i'm sitting this one out yeah what do they do if if you're a free agent if you're an impending free agent like mookie Betts, do you play do you not play i i mean Talk about the dumbest person in the world right now. Yeah. And I'm, you know, being a Red Sox fan, Mookie Betts turned down 10 million, yeah. 10 years, 300 million. More, I thought. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. What the hell is he going to get in the open market now? No. Maybe Nothing. two years, 15? Maybe. No, I'll get more than that. I promise I'll get more than that. What's what's revenue? That, when revenue zero, that affects, that affects what they can. It takes out a lot of I know, teams you could offer you a contract. I know Jared Carabas has this pipe dream that, like, you know, if there's no season, <laughs> he'll never play a game for the Dodgers. He'll come back to Boston. And can you imagine? That, can you imagine? That would be the step. Would be you get Verdugo, Verdugo, talk whatever. About playing chess when people are playing check. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, but crazy. I, I mean, talk about ownership. There, the Red Sox do operate like a, a European soccer club, which I think Adam Silver wants to get the NBA to do. He's just he doesn't he doesn't have the people around right. him to put that together yet. Right. And he's focused on China. But if I was Adam Silver, I'd be growing the game in India, largest country in the world. All right, we'll get into that another day. But <laughs> that, fellas, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like, you know, like I said, this is gonna be a thing. We're gonna have you guys on a lot. This was we've been talking for like an hour and a half almost and it feels like we've been talking for five minutes so um i i I appreciate you coming on i'm excited to see where this goes hopefully people like it if not whatever but like thank you very much for coming on all right guys thank you so much for tuning into episode one and playing the field um you know just so you guys know going forward that this podcast is probably going to be about hour long episodes. Obviously this one, you know, going above an hour 50 is a little bit longer than you should expect for a lot of these interviews, but I want it to be natural. I want these to be conversational. And I think that the best way to do that is to not put any time restrictions on it. I'm going to aim for an hour for sure. But I didn't want to stop the conversation short tonight. We had those three topics that we talked about, and I thought we covered each of them with their due diligence. Um, So thank you so much for tuning in to episode one. Um, 
hopefully this takes off. We'll see where it goes. I'm just really excited, like I said, to share these stories with you guys. I hope you find them interesting. I hope you come back for more. And I'll catch you next time on Playing the Field. Talking sports and always know the truth.